on time today, much less early. So uh, I said, now you should have come Christmas morning because that was probably the only time of the year that we will get out early, especially that early. We were done by 11.30. It was awesome. <laughs> so, uh, but, but it was great. Uh, I can't remember the last time we had Christmas uh, service on Sunday. Uh, I think 2005, someone said, was, was when it was on the calendar. So I don't know if we didn't have service that Christmas Sunday or what, but... Uh, it was really neat being able to worship together on Christmas Day. Uh, so it was a great end to the year, and this will be a great beginning of the new year. Amen? Uh, I really don't know what we're going to call this message, to be honest with you guys, so don't worry about that. Uh, when you write, when you put the CD, just put a date, and we'll figure out a title later. But uh, Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, some scripture to you in... Uh, We're going to begin here in Acts. Acts chapter 1, this is the account from Dr. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke. And in Acts chapter 1, just for the sake of time, instead of reading all this, where I'm going to really is verse 8. Jesus is with his disciples and he tells them, he commands them, verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And he told them of that, that references back to, to Luke's gospel in the 24th chapter of Luke, verse 49, Jesus is telling his disciples about this, and Luke is referencing this. But not only there, but in Luke 11, Jesus in teaching, uh, he, he says, you fathers being good fathers know how to give your children good gifts. How much more if you ask your Father in heaven Will he not give you the Holy Spirit? And so Jesus refers to this here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, as the promise of the Father, which I think is really relevant. It's not just the Holy Spirit. He calls it the promise of the Father. And I believe he does that because when in receiving the Holy Spirit, in receiving salvation, in receiving Christ, in 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 the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ dwelling in you by the Spirit of God, you have received what? You have received the promise of the Father. You have received the promises of God. What does Paul say in Ephesians 1? He says, and he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ. And so in Christ is the fullness of the promise of God. The promises that have been uh, recounted and recorded in Scripture from the very beginnings in Genesis to, to the very end of our recorded Scripture here, in Him is what? Is the fullness. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that you might have it to the full. Colossians says that in Christ dwells the fullness. And if Christ dwells in us, guess what? The fullness dwells in us and we dwell in the fullness. And so he says, go and receive the promise of the Father. Then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, But you shall receive power. Everybody say power. Power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the Spirit of God brings with it what? Power. 
So if you are in Christ and you have received His Spirit, have you received His power? Have you, church? Yes, you have. Now, you might not know that you have, but you have. And so what we do, we do in the Spirit, by the Spirit. Why? Because we are spiritual beings. Now, I know we're, we're natural beings too, right? I mean, we, we really do. This flesh, this body, these chairs you're sitting on are not figments of your imagination. They're real. This is a real earth we live on. You go to a real job, drive a real car, live in a real house, have real clothes on. I mean, that's, that's all true. But that does not negate the fact that who you are, you are in Christ and you are because of Christ and you are by the Spirit. And what God has done in you and through you, He has done by the power of the Spirit. Amen? So what we do must be done in or by the Spirit. And that, that is not a, that's a very practical thing. How many of you ladies washed dishes yesterday? Or sometime this week. How many of you guys wash dishes? Why? Wow. Four hands went up. <laughs> Ladies, how many, how many of those men are lying? No, don't raise your hand. I'm teasing. Well, listen, you, you wash, if you are in Christ, do you know that you wash dishes in the Spirit? Now, you might not have felt like you washed dishes in the Spirit, but you did. When you washed your clothes, you washed them in the Spirit. When you drove to church this morning, you drove in your car, you drove in the Spirit. You're listening to me, you're listening to me right now in the Spirit. Now, that, that doesn't negate the natural things, the natural reality, right? But, but are we in Christ? And if we are, are we in the Spirit? How do we know that? Because that's what the Word of God says. Reach Romans chapter 8, it's very clear. So we need to begin to not just see what the Word of God says, we need to begin to comprehend what the Word of God says. And so what we do, we, we need to do in the Spirit. It's a very practical thing. It was practical to have the disciples wait for the empowering of the Spirit. And there was a very real and specific purpose for that. And it was not practical. It's not practical to try to do spiritual things through the power of the flesh. For instance, you can't be good enough for God by getting your flesh to do good things. You can't be righteous by modifying the behavior of your flesh. Your flesh should be modified or it should behave or whatever you want to say because you are righteous. And how are you righteous? You are righteous in Christ. You are righteous because God has imparted His very own righteousness to you. And how did He do that? Because He imparted His very own life to you. And when He imparted His life to you, guess what else? He imparted His power to you. He didn't impart that power to you so that you could go around and use it and wield it however and whenever you want to. The reality is he imparted that power to us because he has a purpose. He has a predestined purpose for each one of us. Romans 8.29 tells us that predestined purpose is to be conformed to the Son. Well, how are we going to be being conformed to the Son? How are we going to become conformed to the Son? 
It's not through the power of the flesh. It's through the power of the Spirit. It's because the Spirit of God lives on the inside of you, and that Spirit on the inside of you is working out the plan and the purpose of God. Even as you work out your own salvation, it is God working in you both to will and to do, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, according to His good pleasure. So the new birth, listen, the new birth is not the birth of the soul. The new birth is the birth of the Spirit. When you got born again, it wasn't your soul that got born again. It was your spirit that got born again. <clears throat> what is your soul? It's the Greek word suke. It's, it's the seat of your mind, your will, and your emotions. I tell people, I said, you know, we're three-part beings, your body, soul, and spirit, or spirit, soul, and body. Well, in between my spirit and my body is my soul, if we want to put it that way. At the moment I was born again, what was birthed anew, what was born again was my spirit, What's going to pass away one day is my body. It's going to be changed. But what is being changed, what's being conformed, what's being renewed right now is my soul, my mind, my will, and my emotions. And so the new birth is not about your soul being born again. It's about your spirit being born again. And so much of what we do today, we do in an effort to move on men's souls. And we make soulish converts or emotional converts, but, but the reality is what God wants is truly spiritually transformed men and women, boys and girls. He wants people to be spiritually transformed, not just soulishly or emotionally transformed. So if, if I were a real charismatic speaker and I was really good and understood how to manipulate your emotions, I could... I could get you to do all kinds of things. But the question is, why did you do it? Did you do it because I manipulated you emotionally, or did you do it because the Spirit of God moved on you? There are a lot of people that have become very proficient at emotionally manipulating people. I can say things and do things and make you feel really guilty, and out of your guilt you might, you might say, oh, Jesus saved me. But you, did you do that out of your guilt in an emotional moment, or did you do that because the Spirit of God moved on your heart? Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says how we discern that, how we'll know that, is over the test of time. If you have been truly spiritually born again, your life's going to manifest some things consistent with that. If you've just had an emotional experience and you felt guilty or you know, you felt really sorry about the sin you got caught doing, and you did something out of your soul, out of your emotions, that's not going to stand the test of time. So what we're looking for, what we need to come to understand is the reality of the new birth. Do you understand what has happened to you when you were born again? Do you understand, do you realize what lives, what dwells, what abides in you? And where you live and where you dwell and where you abide, do you understand that you abide in Christ and He abides in you? That you are 
the very vessel that carries his presence in the earth. That's an amazing thing. Our salvation is a most wonderful thing. It's only the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's only the gospel. It's only the power of God that can transform a heart, that can spiritually transform or spiritually convert a heart from death to life, from darkness to light. It is that experience. How do we do that? Well, we do that by faith. Who is the one that does that? It is God who does that. Now, as we come into a new year, uh, once again, I, I think a lot of what we have experienced in 2011, we're going to continue to experience in 2012. You know, God, God doesn't just measure years. God is working. Do you believe that, church? God is working. God is dealing. And what is the workings and what are the dealings of God? Why is God dealing and why is He working? Well, He is bringing about a manifestation of His Son. Listen, God really doesn't care about the euro or the dollar or the yen or the Deutschmark, whether there is one or there is not one, whether they're going to stay together or not stay together. The only reason he cares about that, the only reason he's involved in that is because all of those things are working together to bring about what? To ultimately bring about the manifestation of his son, the revelation of the son of God. Paul writes that even the creation groans, awaiting what? The manifestation of the sons of God. Where is that manifestation going to take place? It's going to take place in you and I. We are the sons of God. We are the children of God. And so this is what God is doing. Well, when did God begin this? Did God just begin this when Jesus came and was born in the manger and Now, for the last 2,000 years, God's been doing this. No, this is the eternal plan of God. And so we can learn from the things that we have recorded for us in the Scripture. Do you believe that? Let's go to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Now, I'm really not going to try to finish today because we won't finish today. I don't... And uh, we'll continue this next week. We'll just go as far as we can get in talking about this today. Joshua chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. And we're going to read the first nine verses of this. Joshua 5, verse 1. So it was, when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until, he ha- until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. That's an awesome scripture. It says, When the Amorites and the Canaanites heard that God had dried up the rivers of the Jordan until the multitude of the children of Israel had crossed over into the promised land. It says their hearts melted and there was no spirit left in them. They said, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble now. Who dried up the waters? 
God did. Who caused them and enabled them to be able to cross over into that land? God did. And the enemies of God did what? Their hearts melted before what God did. Do you know that the enemy, do you know that your enemy, his heart has melted because of what God has done? Don't think that it has not. He has lost and he knows he has lost. You have won and you should know that you win. You believe that? Now, I know you're going to say you believe it because it's the right answer. I'm not asking you, do do you believe it here? Do you believe it because you read it in Scripture? Do you believe it because I'm telling you, I'm saying it to you now? I'm saying, do you believe it in your heart? Do you believe it in your heart? Irregardless of what you say to me today, what you confess outwardly from your lips today, you know it's going to betray whether you believe it or not, how you live your life. That's what's going to really prove the test. The enemy can roar like a lion all he wants, but his heart is melted, his spirit has been dashed, he is defeated. And he knows it. The problem is, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't know it. But she should. Say, well, I know that, Pastor, but... No, it's either true or it's not true. And I'm going to believe the Word. I'm not going to believe the newspaper. I'm not going to believe the television. I'm not going to believe the latest, greatest books that are being written. I'm going to believe what the Word of God says. I'm going to believe what the Word of the Lord says. Last time I checked, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC... The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, whatever else we like to read and watch and listen to, the last time I heard, that was not the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, don't misunderstand what's being said here. These people weren't circumcised a second time. He's talking about his nation. And I'll explain this. As we go along, it's actually pretty self-explanatory here. So Joshua, verse 3, made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all, the, all those men who died, they were all circumcised. For all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way, say on the way, on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed. Why? Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have, say I have. Actually say God has. This is what the Lord says to Joshua. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. So here is... What's happened? You wonder why the children of Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert? They wandered for 40 years because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. But it was God who dried up the river, who brought them into the land. It was God who rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Has God rolled away your reproach? Are you in Christ? If the answer is yes, do you know that God has rolled away your reproach? We sing songs about it every week. Do you believe what you're singing? Do you know that the songs we sing are very purposeful? We make sure that the theology in those songs is right. That these songs, what, listen, what comes out of our mouth is important. This is not not just about having some emotional experience when you come to church. We really should know what we sing and we should believe what we sing. We sang it today, that God has taken away our reproach, that God has taken away our sin, that we can look wholly on Him. We can venture to look wholly on Him because He has taken away our sin. Do you believe that? He has rolled away your reproach. He did it by the blood of Jesus. When the Son of God was crucified on the cross, when His flesh was, in essence, cut away, it was cut away for you. And when you were crucified with Him, by grace, through faith, God rolled away your reproach. Here are the children of Israel. Forty years after they came to the promised land the first time, now God dried up the river Jordan. They passed through. They were all circumcised, and they are ready to possess the land. Let's go back 40 years before this day, and let's look what happened What was it that caused a generation to die in the wilderness? Go to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. Our text is Numbers chapters 13 and 14, but we're not going to cover that in 20 minutes. So I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version for right now, okay? So Numbers chapter 13, 
Let's begin in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall, you shall send a man, every one, a leader from among them. Now I want you to hold your place there, and I want you to go back a couple of chapters to Numbers chapter 10. And I want you to look at Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. Numbers 10.33 says, So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. You know where they've come to? Right here at Numbers 13. Three days before, they were at the mountain where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, gave him the law, They left the mountain, and the Ark of the Covenant went three days' journey before them to search out for them a resting place. And the Ark, and those carrying the Ark, come to the entrance to the Promised Land. Read that scripture in Numbers 10.33, and then go read John chapter 14, and think about What happened when the Ark of the Covenant left to go prepare a resting place three days ahead of them? Read John 14 and see what God is saying. What was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God dwelt among His people, right? That was a shadow. Who's the fulfillment? Christ is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Not in shadow, but in substance. Well, I can't get sidetracked on that bunny trail, so I'll just have to keep going here. So they come to this place, and Moses says, okay, we're going to send men to spy out the land. This is what God instructed Moses to do. So they sent a leader from all the tribes, and in verses 5 through 15, it lists, the tribes, and it lists the leader from each tribe that went into the land. I just want to draw your attention to verse 6 and verse 8. Two tribes in particular. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, or Hosea, Moses changed his name to Joshua. Verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Hosea or Hosea means deliverer. Joshua means God is salvation. So they go into the land. And for 40 days, verse 25 tells us, they spied out the land and then they returned after the 40 days. They came back to the children of Israel. They said, man, this is an awesome land. Flowing with milk and honey. Grapes are so big. Produce is awesome. But there's one problem. There's giants in the land. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And there's no way we're going to take this land. They crush us in a moment. Verse 30, 
Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men said, No, we're not able. They're stronger than we are. There's giants. Chapter 14, verse 1, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Verse 2, And all the people of Israel did what? Complained. Moaned. They complained. Oh, God, why did you let Moses bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Why can't we just go back to Egypt? Now we've come to the promised land, the land you promised us, but you didn't tell us there were going to be giants in the land. Now we can't take the land, and now we're stuck out here in the middle of nowhere. How are we going to, what are we going to do? They complained. Who's ever complained before? Don't raise your hand. Because we all have. We all do. But this was some serious complaining. Now, I know make light of this. But I I want you to really stop and think for a moment what these people have experienced, what they have witnessed, and listen, listen to them. But before you cast stones at them, understand this is the human condition. This is the fallen nature of man. We are no different. We are just like them. Joshua and Caleb tried to convince them. Numbers 14.8. Caleb says, If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So in their doubt and in their unbelief, God says, okay, that's the way you want it. I'm done with you. And we can go through the whole story there, but Moses pleads with God. God's ready to just kill them all. Moses pleads with God, and God relents. And God says, okay, for every day that you are in the land, for 40 days, every day is going to be a year that you're going to wander in the wilderness because of your doubt and unbelief, except for Caleb and Joshua. He said of Caleb, he said, there is a different spirit in Caleb. They were the only two that believed, that had faith, that believed the word of the Lord. Now, we are people of faith. And what does the Scripture say? The just shall do what? Walk by faith. Caleb and Joshua walked by faith. They saw the giants. They knew the giants were real. They saw the obstacles. They knew the obstacles were real. But in spite of that, they didn't give heed to that. Why? Because they knew knew what God had said. The other ten knew what God had said, but they allowed what they saw, what they experienced, to override what they knew to be the word of the Lord. 
And they said, we can't do it. And they did not obey the Lord. And so God sets them to wander in the wilderness. Now, after God pronounces all of this, go to chapter 14, let's go down to verse 36. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. It's kind of severe, isn't it? But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. Verse 40, look at this. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain saying, Here we are. Here we are, God. And we're going to go to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. It says, look, we're sorry. We've changed our mind. We slept on it last night, and we decided we're going to go ahead and we're going to go ahead and, and do this. Funny, after seeing those ten guys die by the plague before the Lord, they kind of got motivated. It's like, ooh, wow. Well, maybe we should go ahead and try this. After all, we're going, Moses. Moses says, "Now, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed." Do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. Well, they went up and they got defeated. Why? Because the Lord was not among them. Now, it's interesting to me as I compare these 40 years in the wilderness. You know, 40 is a, a common day. It's a common theme throughout the Scripture. 40 years for the passing of the old. God says, you're going to wander for 40 years, and I'm going to cause all of that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, to pass away. I'll raise up a new generation, and they will enter into the land. 40 years to bring a new generation out of Egypt, What did he bring them through? He brought them through the waters of the Jordan into the promise. And when we look at the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, wandering for 40 years, and then finally at the end of that 40 years, God having raised up a new, something new, a new generation, a new people, he dries up, the, the, the waters of the Jordan, they cross over. The only two from the old are Joshua and Caleb. Now, what's interesting, go back to chapter 3, I mean chapter 13. Caleb came from the tribe of Judah. Joshua came from the tribe of Ephraim. Do you know what's significant about the tribe of Judah? It is through Judah that Christ came. That is the lineage of Christ. Do you know what's significant about Ephraim? 
Ephraim was the second-born son of Joseph in Egypt. Not the first-born, but the second-born. When Jacob is dying and he's getting ready to bless, he's blessing all of his children, and he comes to Joseph and he prays a blessing over Joseph's child, and he reaches out to pray the blessing over Manasseh, or actually, he reaches out and he prays the blessing over Ephraim, and Joseph says, no, father, Manasseh is my firstborn. Jacob says, no, the blessing is going to Ephraim. Manasseh meant God has made me forget the land of my fathers. God has made me forget. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You know what's significant about the tribe of Ephraim? Or Ephraim. Who was Ephraim? Ephraim was a product of Joseph, a Jew, and his wife, an Egyptian. And we see what? We see Jew and Gentile made one where? In one. You go to Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul says of Christ, He has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has made the two one. Now listen, church, what I'm saying to you, these are not just nice stories and nice history. Do you understand what God is doing here? In the very minute details of what God is causing to come about here, God is writing us, drawing us a very clear picture of his plan of redemption. Why am I bringing this to you this morning? I'm bringing you this to you this morning because we need to understand that God is, is in the details. And you might think, especially over the course of this last year, that somehow God lost track of some of the details of your life. Well, I'm going to tell you what. God has not lost track of one jot or tittle of any detail of your life. Before time began, God knew that Caleb would come through Judah. He knew that Joshua would come through Ephraim. And he sent the son of Jacob to be a slave in Egypt so that this son, Ephraim, could come forth so that the two could be made one, so that this picture of redemption could be shown over and over and over again, so that when it comes to us face to face and we're staring at it person to person, are we going to believe the word of the Lord? Are you going to keep watching the news, reading the newspaper, feigning because of the giants that are all in the land? Are you going to believe that you are more than able to overcome it. What are you going to believe? See, if you don't believe God is in the details of your life, He's in the detail of Scripture. You dig in there and you see. I mean, we're not, we're not going to do it today, but we'll do it next week. We'll look at some of the, the amazing detail. You say, well, that's just a coincidence. You know, 40 years here and 40 years there and this happened then and that. No, it's not a coincidence. It's on purpose. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the honor of kings to search out a matter. It's your honor to find what God has concealed in His Word 
that you might have hope to overcome the giants that you're facing because this is your land. This is our time, church. This is our time of visitation. You didn't choose to live on planet Earth right now. God chose for you to live on planet Earth right now. You didn't choose the parents you were born of. God chose your parents for you. God has put you right where he wants you to be. And he's got a purpose that he wants to work out in and through your life. The question is, do you believe it? It's easy to say yes sitting here right now while I'm shouting at you. It's not quite as easy tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, or Thursday. But nothing has changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. The same God that told them to go into the land and take it, even though God knew, you know God knew the giants were there. As a matter of fact, God put the giants there. You think God was caught off guard? Well, golly, I thought I got those giants out of the land. Gee, I'm sorry, children of Israel. I didn't know there were giants there. We go through life and we think, God, didn't you know? God, how could that have happened? Or we blame it on the devil. As if, no, quit being focused on the devil. He's defeated. He is defeated. Trust in God. Trust in God, even in the details of your life, even in the face of the giants that are standing before you. Trust that you are more than able to overcome it because God has declared a thing. God has said so. And more than that, more than God has said so, God has done it in his son. Listen, those children of Israel... They crossed over the Jordan and they were looking to something. On that day when Jesus came to the Jordan River and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was the beginning of his earthly ministry. Three and a half years later, he was crucified. Forty years later, the temple was gone. The sacrificial system was gone. Everything of the old had passed away. And God had put his stamp of approval on the new. And you are the new. And he is the new and living way. We're not going to something. We're coming from something. It's finished. We can look back and see what Christ has done. Man, we're not headed toward a... We're not in a shadow looking for the substance. We are living, moving, breathing inside the substance. He is our life. In Him we live and move and have our very being, church. Do you believe that? In Him, in Christ. You'll see Him again one day face to face when He comes again. You know why? Because He's already done what He's going to do. Your salvation's not in question. Your victory is not in question. Whatever mountains or valleys or giants you've faced, and, and you will face because it's not over yet. But I can say this with assurance. I don't have a clue what mountains, what valleys, what giants are ahead in your life, but I know the God who has declared that you are more than able to overcome it. So I really don't care 
what the giants look like and how deep the valleys are. The only thing that matters is, do I know my God? Do you know your God? And if you know your God, then there is no giant too big and there's not too, a valley too deep or a mountain too high for God to overcome it. This is the God we're called to put our trust in. This is the God of the new year. This is the God of the old year. (laughs) This is the God who understands the detail of all the disaster, all the death, all the destruction, all the mayhem that is going on in the world around us. He understands it all. He's the Lord of it all. And out of all of that, his plan, his purpose, his glory, it will be revealed. Do you have faith? Do you have faith? You have faith that God has put you here for a reason. And it's more than just coming to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. We've got to get out of that mentality. I am bound and determined that somehow, some way this year, we're going to break out of church will be victorious because it is victorious. His plans and his purposes shall be accomplished in Taylor, Texas. The question is, are we going to be part of it or is God going to raise up another generation to do it? I don't want to get to heaven one day and find out this is what I wanted you to do. Just didn't have the faith to do it. Listen to the other voices and listen 